0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening
1: right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We also wanted to bring your attention today to Afghanistan. Why? Well, because today marks one year since the Taliban recaptured the capital city of Kabul. So by the end of August 2021, we should say, the last U.S. troops had left the country. It really marked the end of an era there. Well, since then, there have been international sanctions and those have helped, well, essentially drive the Afghan economy into a downward spiral. It's not a good situation there. The United Nations says millions of people are facing hunger or worse in that country. So it is a good day to check in and see what is happening there. Joining us now is Oral Brown, who is a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us.
2: Good morning.
1: How different is Afghanistan today versus a year ago?
2: It is a major difference in crucial ways that are truly frightening. This was, of course, not a prosperous country and there was corruption before, there was conflict, but the suppression of rights, in fact, the disappearance of rights in Afghanistan is so stark that we are looking at a new dark era. There were those who had hoped that the Taliban would have reformed themselves. Certainly, the leaders of the Taliban who negotiated various uh, deals with uh, Western uh, officials, um, even before the uh, fall of Afghanistan, claimed that they would be reformed. But the reality is that this is a religious totalitarian movement, and by its very nature, it cannot allow for rights. And sadly, the situation is not only terrible, for women in particular and the population in general, it may well get worse.
1: Was there also a hope perhaps that this regime was more prepared for this, more prepared to govern? Because it doesn't seem like they were.
2: It's not, I would suggest, a matter of not being prepared to govern. It is that they are not prepared to allow any areas of freedom, and that is the nature of totalitarianism, whether it's extreme right totalitarianism, such as uh, fascism, or extreme left totalitarianism, as marxist leninist stalinist uh, communism Every area of human activity has to be controlled. The population is infantilized. So the Ministry of Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice is a kind of brilliant designation where in order to supposedly make life more pure and better for people, a Taliban government would tell individuals, men and women, how to run their lives. One official would make uh, the statement that women need to be protected because they're weak and helpless. And this is what we do. We protect them by keeping them at home, keeping them out of school, so they are not molested. And men also uh, uh, need protection because uh, another official said that if uh, a woman goes to the park with her husband, this would be bad even for the man because he might see other women and be tempted. So men are also viewed as beasts who cannot control their base desires. So this is the mentality of this government. Hmm. So we can't just argue about uh, the implementation. This is not not a problem that some tolerant ideology is being badly implemented. It is that a terrible ideology is so, to seize Afghanistan's government.
1: Has anything changed in terms of, I mean, they obviously need international help. They need humanitarian aid. They have been asking for that, but has there is there any influence to be had from other countries in the world to say, you can't do this, but we have to, you know, if you want us to provide you with aid?
2: It's very difficult to persuade a totalitarian system because the primary goal is survival, not the well-being of the population. They may grant privileges, but they will not allow rights. So the pressure has to be of the level of intensity where the ruling elites in the Taliban, they feel pain, they feel that they need to make concessions, or otherwise the rule might be endangered. And at the moment, the country that would be best equipped to do that of the Taliban after they were defeated the first time and they returned to power, and that is Pakistan. And Pakistan has played uh, or certain key elements of the government of Pakistan has played a kind of double game that has been extraordinarily harmful. And the previous governments of Afghanistan, leaders in that government, whenever they would discuss uh, the key problems uh, within the country, insurgency, pressure from the outside, and these were not uh, there were successful governments at times, but they did try to introduce a variety of crucial reforms, and they did recognize the rights of uh, uh, people uh, in very seminal ways, uh, though uh, they were fragile democracies and imperfect democracies at best. They would talk about the nefarious influence of Pakistan, and I don't think we in the West have paid enough attention to that. We have brought sanctions against the Taliban regime, but we have not sanctioned the Pakistani regime for helping sustain the Pakistani power.
1: So much more work to do. Oral, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for having me on.
1: Oral Brown is a professor of international relations and political science at the University of toronto talking about the one year anniversary since the taliban recaptured kabul and of course that was the beginning of the end of western troops in afghanistan the u.s pulled out by the end of the month canada pulled out and of course there are still repercussions from all of that this is mornings with simi listen on your hd radio at 101.1 fm hd2 and on 980 cknw This isn't the time of year, I think, where a lot of people are thinking about elections or voting. But there are some opportunities to do so. We've talked about the municipal elections. They're coming up in October. And now, over the weekend, we heard that Premier John Horgan has called a by-election. So this is a provincial by-election for Surrey South. And the reason why that is that the B.C. Liberal MLA there, Stephanie Cadu, stepped down in April She has become Canada's first Chief Accessibility Officer. So that opened up the seat, and I think parties have been waiting to find out when is this by-election going to happen? Well, it has now been called. So how significant are by-elections? What do they mean? Why are you going to be hearing so much about this in the news now? Well, joining us now for more on that is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Thanks for being here this morning.
3: You're welcome, Sydney. Good
1: morning. Good morning. So we spend a lot of time talking about by-elections, but Hamish, does the general public pay attention to these? How significant are they?
3: Well, they're significant in the fact that the the voters of Surrey South don't have a representative at the moment and they need to get a new representative elected to to the legislature to represent their interests in in Victoria. So so they are important in that sense. Um, now this by election is not going to change the outcome of or the balance of, of seats in, in the legislature. The NDP will still be the government after after this by election. So by-elections typically see a much lower voter turnout, and I have to say, I think this uh, by-election was strategically called to keep voter turnout very low. It was called, of course, in the height of summer when people are off On holiday, and it's going to be held uh, at the end of the first week after Labor Day when people go back to work, get the kids back in school, and also on the day that the Federal Conservative Party is announcing their new leader. So I I think the government wanted this one to fly under the radar, and I don't think there's much secret as to why uh, governments in BC tend not to do well in by elections.
1: Okay, yeah, let's talk more about that historically then. So so governments can do that, right? They can call the by-election to their advantage, uh, and that has happened historically, hasn't it?
3: Oh, absolutely. The the premier has the right to decide when to call the by-election within a certain time frame, uh, but within that time frame, he has absolute discretion as to when to call it. And uh, very often uh, people view by-elections as a time to state their displeasure with with the government, um, particularly in, in a case, because it doesn't affect the outcome. Uh, it's a low-cost opportunity to send a message to the government. And uh, so governments typically in this province don't do well in by-elections.
1: But some of them are quite significant, right? Like lots of people come and win in a by-election, and then they're still around uh, for you know decades after that.
3: Sure, absolutely, because uh, we'll have another election in in two years' time, uh, the regular general provincial election and incumbents have a, a historic advantage. So whoever gets elected in this by-election uh, stands a reasonably good chance of, of winning in the general election in two years.
1: Okay, so what about candidates here? So let's take a look. What, if, what is your assessment of what is going on in Surrey South right now?
3: Yeah, so I think both the major parties have recruited uh, good candidates. The Liberals went out and uh, recruited a woman named uh, Eleanor Sturko, who many people in Surrey and elsewhere will be familiar with. She was an RCMP spokesperson uh, for Surrey for, for uh, quite some time, so she's quite a familiar media personality. Uh, and the NDP are going with a woman named Pauline Greaves, uh, who's a business professor at Langara College, uh, and who ran in the last election and just lost to Stephanie Cadu by, by about 1,200 votes. So she, you know, she ran just uh, two years ago. She she knows the area. She knows how to run a campaign. She presumably has a ground team available to her. Uh, so uh, both sort of, I think, relatively experienced candidates, and and the race should be close.
1: Yeah. So what is the history of this particular area?
3: Well, this is a relatively new riding that has been carved uh, out of other ridings because of population growth. Uh, South Surrey, White Rock of typically uh, being favorable to the B.C. Liberals, um, but the demographics are changing in, in South Surrey. So whereas Stephanie Cadu won the riding in 2017 by over 5,000 votes in the last election, she just won it by 1,200. Uh, and that's Presumably, in part because of demographics uh, turning more favorable to the NDP, and of course, they're hoping over the last two years that uh, it's become more favorable to them. We'll, we shall see.
1: Do by-elections act as bellwethers at all, Hamish? Like, can we can we infer anything from by-elections about how the electorate is feeling?
3: No, I don't think we can because we're dealing with one riding out of 87 across the province. And the other thing to remember about by-elections is that we get a very low voter turnout, and uh, it's usually those people who either have a very high sense of civic duty who go out to vote, and/or have some kind of grievance. So, so we're not getting a representative sample even of the voters in South Surrey in in this by-election.
1: So then, why do we why do we think they're so important then? Because obviously, we look at that as some kind of report card. On the provincial government,
3: yes, um, and it is important because, as I say, all British Columbians need a representative in the legislature to represent their interests, and and so. Um, we we do view this um, as as an opportunity, perhaps to get a, a bit of a report card on the government, There's it's also going to be a bit of a report card on the BC Liberals. Right, this this is uh, Kevin Falcon won his own riding in a by election a few months ago. That was not a, a big surprise that he won his his seat, um, but at, this is the first by election I believe uh, with him as leader. And uh, so I think that that uh, might be a bit of a referendum on his leadership as well. So I think the V.C. liberals will be taking this very seriously.
1: Can we view it more as like a sneak preview? Is that if this is these are the messages we're going to hear, these are the lines that we're going to hear, this is what we're going to be targeted with, you know, in the next couple of years?
3: Uh, possibly, particularly for the Surrey region I think this will be a more sort of regional kind of, of, of election um, But I don't think it gives us a forecast of what's going to happen necessarily in, in two years' time Other than the fact uh, that the B.C. Liberals will be uh, criticizing the NDP in certain ways And uh, you know, let's remember as well, the B.C. NDP is about to make major changes uh, with the election of a new leader in the next couple of months
1: yeah, that's what I was wondering, too. So is this does feel like BC politics in a bit of a flux situation right now, doesn't it?
3: It does. And uh, um, that might provide some opportunity for for the BC NDP. If people are thinking of giving the BC NDP a bad uh, report here, um, then they could say, well, look, you know, it's going to be a new party in just a couple of months with a new leader.
1: All right. Interesting times, as always. Thank you for your time this morning.
3: You're welcome to me.
1: That's Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of the Fraser Valley, talking about the by election being called in Surrey South. Uh, this is to replace Stephanie Kediu, the former BC Liberal MLA. And it's going to be an interesting one to watch because despite all that, Despite, you know, what history has shown us, we still think of this as a referendum on how people are feeling, right? It's a by-election. It's going to the voters two years after the last election, theoretically two years before the next one. So how are people feeling I think there's going to be a lot of scrutinizing of what is happening in Surrey South, actually. And since we're talking about provincial politics today, we have to remind you about what's going on with the BCGEU. Now, this is the BC General Employees Union. They're a public service union. They they will be beginning targeted job action today. Remember, this is the first big union to undergo negotiations with the provincial government during this time of, well, belt tightening, yet high inflation. And it did not go well. And now we're at the point now where they issued their 72-hour strike notice. That expires at about 3 o'clock this afternoon. And we were waiting to find out what the job action would look like. And we now know what it will look like. So picket lines are going up. At some distribution center, so this will be this won't impact you as a residential customer or just a regular retail customer, but it will impact businesses and others who go to a wholesale distribution center so for um, uh, certain cannabis stores and for liquor stores. Uh, these are the distribution centers that are being impacted, but not the kind that you go to. So retail liquor and cannabis stores, not part of this phase of job action, but their warehouses are. So there's one in Delta, a couple, there's one in Kamloops, one in Richmond, and one in Victoria that are going to be impacted by this. So limited job action as of this afternoon, that's at three o'clock this afternoon. But of course, lots of scrutiny as to how is this going to impact people and is this just the first step. So more questions on that to come, but keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 ZKNW. Hey, don't forget, we still have to give away a four pack of ticket and gate passes, ride passes as well for The P&E, which kicks off on Saturday. I hope you were listening for that code word back in our 6 o'clock hour because you're going to need it uh, coming up when we have that cue to call. So that's still ahead on the show this morning. Also, we're closely following the potential strike action happening uh, starting at Three o'clock or so this afternoon when the 72-hour strike notice expires from the BCGEU. This is the first big public sector union to have some job action. There are numerous uh, unions that are actually going to be negotiating with the provincial government coming up this year and into next as agreements are expiring. One of the other big ones, of course, is the BC Teachers Federation. We know there's an ongoing teacher shortage. We know that teacher graduates are still having trouble to get into classrooms. I mean, if there's a labour shortage everywhere else, the teaching industry is no different. There are still so many issues to be addressed. So we thought, let's check in and see what's going on on that front. Clint Johnson joins us now, president of the BCTF. Clint, thanks for being here.
4: Thank you very much for having me, Timmy.
1: Can you update me? Where are things with negotiations with the provincial government right now?
4: Um. Yeah, so, so things are active right now. In fact, we'll uh, we'll be back at the table with them for three days this week, starting tomorrow. Um, we have three days face-to-face at the table. Uh, we schedule what we could throughout the summer, and then they'll be ongoing into the fall.
1: Okay, so how would you classify those negotiations so far?
4: Uh, well, I think the negotiations have been um, probably more positive than the last couple rounds. We've made some progress on some um, smaller non-cost items that are you know mutual interest in improving Things for everyone, uh, but as you would expect, there's some, uh, there's definitely some difficulties around uh, compensation around the salaries that we're looking at negotiating for our members to keep up with inflation.
1: Right. So, what uh, what is the BCTF looking for? Is it similar to what we've heard from, say, the BCGU?
4: Well, in terms of numbers, I don't know about how similar it is, but we're certainly looking for uh, sort of raises for our members that mean that they don't actually lose money. That's been an ongoing issue for us in terms of, of, of wage increases that don't actually keep up with inflation. So given the rate of inflation right now, yeah, we're looking for something that means our members don't fall further behind in one of the most expensive markets in the country.
1: Okay, what does that look like then?
4: Well, you've seen the inflation numbers. are anywhere for, you know, I don't know where I see them, 55 to 8%, depending on who you look at. Um, but really what it is, is it's not about a number. It's about attaching it uh, so that if they go up, if they go down, that our members don't go backwards in their wages.
1: Okay. So does that mean that you're also looking for something in that 5 to 8% range over the next year or two?
4: Well, we're not sharing numbers out publicly yet. As you know, we tried uh, we try to keep our bargaining at the table as long as we can. But you look at the numbers for inflation. And, and as I said, we hope that our members get a cost a wage increase that doesn't Mean they go backwards in terms of salary in real terms.
1: Okay, so what else is going on then? What else is high on the list for the BCTF? What about classroom sizes? What about those kinds of resources?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I appreciate you bringing that up because the working conditions of our members is always a priority. And it's no secret, I think, that that's been a struggle at the table uh, for quite a while now. And we're absolutely looking to have some improvements, both in terms of size, in terms of the workloads teachers face, uh, there's been, you know, for quite a while now, there's been work added uh, to teachers' to teachers' tasks without any anything changing otherwise, and uh, that load being reduced a little bit. So we're certainly looking for improvements in work conditions in terms of class size, but also in terms of some of the other tasks that teachers have had to start to take on.
1: So the last couple of years has been relatively quiet on that front, but how would you describe what is going on with teachers in the last year or two, especially with COVID and the pandemic?
4: Well, the, you know, that's two, uh, there's two kind of things there, because as you said, during COVID and the pandemic, that's been a difficult time for everyone. I want to acknowledge that right away that uh, I don't think our sector is necessarily that different than others. It's been, it's been difficult um, and at times even chaotic I- everywhere in terms of covering, but for our members, this what this did is it really just exacerbated problems and cracks that were already there. Um, when you look at as you mentioned, the teacher shortage at the top, we already had a chronic teacher shortage. Uh, and then when you go through a pandemic and people are making decisions about whether they can work or whether they retire a little bit early, um, it just exacerbates problems that already exist. So what was already a difficult uh, job just got more difficult.
1: Okay. So would you say, is there still a shortage out there? Like are, are is it tough to recruit teachers these days?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, and I was looking at uh, the article uh, online and, and, Looking at what Alison Jewell had to say, and I think she's hit a lot of the things on the head, it's definitely it's difficult to fill those spaces. There is absolutely still a shortage. Um, and I think it's good for people to be aware that we're not just talking about a shortage in rural and remote anymore. That's been a problem for a long time, but it's not just in those rural and remote areas anymore. Um, you know, you've hit the two things, workload and salary, where people work and how happy they are in their workplace and how tenable that work is as a career uh, combined with the salary they get that makes it livable for them. Uh, those are the two things that keep people, bring people to a career and keep them in a career. And right now, those don't combine very well in teaching, No you know, things.
1: It Remarkable how quickly things change, though, Clint, because, you know, five Thank years you. ago, we were talking about how we had all these teachers who were very excited that, you know, they were going to finally get hired, get full-time jobs Thank after you. waiting for so long. I mean, how did that change so quickly?
4: Well, I don't I don't know if it changed that quickly. Certainly, everybody knows that um, when we won the court case, you know, there was a sudden jump in the need for teachers. Um, But that said, that was six years ago. Um, And that said, also, it was it was reasonably clear to everyone that that was a good possibility and there should have been some preparation made for it. So there was that leap. But as I said, that was six years ago. Um, And I don't think that's something we can keep looking at as the root of the issue. Uh, We've had some time to do with it to increase the number of teachers we're training to diversify where those programs are located in the province so that people can maybe uh, get that education in their community without leaving and stay in that community and teaching that community. So um, certainly there were teachers who were excited to get jobs and that was a big leap, but there's been a problem for quite a while um, and we've had some time to address it. So, we think it should be improving.
1: Okay, so how uh, are you feeling optimistic at all about discussions right now about negotiations?
4: Um, Always optimistic. I mean, we obviously, you mentioned the EU off the top, and um, you know, that's an interesting dynamic that's going on. But our goal is always to try to get a deal at the table. As I said, this round has been, um, I would say, better at the table. Um, There are some stumbling blocks for sure, but we're always optimistic that we can get. Get that deal done and keep our members working and keep the system going. That's always our goal.
1: All right. We'll see what happens. Clint, thanks for your time.
4: Thank you, Sammy. Appreciate it.
1: That's Clint Johnson, who's the president of the BC Teachers Federation. They are also at the table with the provincial government, and they are closely watching what is unfolding with the BCGEU. That is the first of the big unions that are undergoing these negotiations right now with the province to say, nope, it's not going well. In fact, they issued 72-hour strike notice on Friday. That strike notice expires at 3 o'clock this afternoon, and they have already indicated that they will be taking some limited job action. They will be picketing at several distribution locations, so BC Liquor Distribution Branch locations. These are the wholesale and distribu- distribution centres of um, alcohol for the province, so that's going to start at three thirty this afternoon. There's one in Delta, one in Kamloops, one in Richmond, one in Victoria. Now, I've heard from some private businesses who are not happy about that because they say, "Well, wait a minute, we also get our alcohol from these distribution centers. The government—you have to get all of your alcohol, whether no matter what business, private, public, whatever—you have to get it through the government. So they're saying this will also impact them." And they feel that because it was issued on a Friday, they didn't get a whole lot of notice to stock up or, or take the precautions that they would need to. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 ZKNW. It's the kind of story that no one wants to hear about when it comes to our health care system. The fact that somebody waited so long for an ambulance that it is believed that it may have impacted whether or not that person, well, made it. We're hearing about that from Ashcroft this weekend. Sunday morning, a man believed to be in his 80s suffered cardiac arrest in the village of Ashcroft. Called the mayor, or called the mayor. The mayor's talking about it now, but called an ambulance. And it took a a while for that ambulance to arrive, actually. The nearest ambulance was said to be about half an hour away when the ambulance did arrive, though, the man was pronounced dead. So you can see why there would be so many questions about what happened there. So we are talking about this now with the mayor of the village of Ashcroft, Barbara Roden. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Now, I know there have been a lot of concerns about ambulance wait times, particularly in smaller communities. What ha- What has it been like for Ashcroft?
0: It's been very frightening for a lot of people. And 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 people think I'm exaggerating for effect when I use that word frightening. But it it, it is because we are a small community. We're an hour from Kamloops. People know that if something goes wrong, if if they have a heart attack, if they have a serious medical issue, they will be taken to Royal Inland, uh, preferably by ambulance so that you can get that medical attention you need en route. And These two instances coming within a month of each other where the ambulance was called for someone in severe medical distress and taking half an hour to arrive has has really got a lot of people on edge and wondering what on earth is happening.
1: So what happened in this latest case on the weekend?
0: Uh, Someone saw uh, the gentleman collapsed um, and called 911 and was told that the ambulance ETA was 35 minutes. And so the dispatcher... I understand what happens is if, if you report a medical situation and it's something that is quite severe, the dispatcher will try to find an alternative um, until the ambulance gets there. And so in this case, they contacted Ashcroft Fire Rescue and asked if, if someone from our volunteer fire department could go. And our fire chief, who has a level one first aid ticket, said, we're not medical first responders. That isn't what we do, but I'll go. And so he got the AED from the fire hall and attended a couple of other um, firefighters pulled up in their own vehicles because they all heard the page. And with a couple of neighbors, they tried CPR until the ambulance arrived, which took, I believe, 29 minutes from the time Ashcroft Fire Rescue got the call to when the ambulance arrived.
1: All right. But they were unable to save this man. So are you worried when you hear stories like this that there could there could be more?
0: I, I am worried, Cindy. I mean, this is this is two. They, they occurred exactly four weeks apart. Um, I know that we have heard about long wait times for ambulances, but in two, these two cases, they've both been within sight of the ambulance station. They've both involved people who passed away. I'm not a medical person, obviously, and I'm, I'm not privy to medical details. I do not know if the person yesterday could have been saved if an ambulance had been able to arrive sooner. I don't know. The fire chief doesn't know. But it is very, very concerning for for residents in the town because we want to know that those services we depend on in case of emergency will be there uh, in a timely manner. No one no one expects a, an ambulance to be outside their house all the time. But when we have an ambulance station and we're told oh it's half an hour till it gets to you, that's very, very concerning.
1: Right now, I know we we talked um, four weeks ago too, when the other case happened as well. Did anything, you know, change as a result of of you bringing that forward four weeks ago?
0: Not that I've heard. Uh, yesterday, after this the second incident, I did contact a number of people at BC Emergency Health Services. Uh, I've heard back from Troy Clifford, who's president of the ambulance union, to say that that he believes there will be a review. Uh, and I understand from from something else I saw that yes, they will be reviewing this instance as well as the one four weeks ago. But what changes come out of that? I, I have no idea. I haven't heard anything. I just hope that they can find something that isn't a band-aid solution, such as making our volunteer firefighters medical first responders.
1: Mayor Roden, prior to these the last two incidences, had you heard of something like this happening before? Like what what, what would be a normal wait time for an ambulance for somebody in Ashcroft?
0: Well, I've had occasion to call the ambulance myself um, in the past, and normally it's been here within 10 to 12 minutes. Um, I can pretty much see the ambulance station from from my house on the other side of town. Now, that said, last week I did have to call the ambulance on behalf of someone else in in my neighbourhood, and it was an hour and 10 minutes for the ambulance to arrive because it obviously was not in town. Um and what happens is the ambulances from Ashcroft will have to transport someone to Kamloops. Uh they're both say doing that. That leaves us with no ambulance here in town, so then they have to pull from the next nearest community which is Clinton, which is twenty, twenty five minutes away, but then the Clinton ambulance could be off covering hundred miles.
1: Right. What are you hearing from residents? What are they saying to you?
0: They're scared. Uh, They really are. I've heard numerous instances of people who said they are considering moving away from the town. They are considering, uh, you know, maybe one or two people saying they had heard of people who were planning on moving here or wanted to move here, but now are having second thoughts. People saying my adult children on the coast or wherever they live are saying, you know, do you really want to keep living there? And this isn't just an Ashcroft thing. This is happening in our rural communities, and it's very frustrating because, you know, those of us who live in rural communities happen to believe they are absolutely wonderful places to to live and work and play. And when something like this happens, it impacts all of us because then people look and say, "Well, gee, do I really do I really want to move, move there?" Look look at what's happening, and, and it's it's hollowing us out. It's creating fear, and it's causing a lot of people to have to uproot their lives when they should be able to to rely on the health care services that all British Columbians are supposed to enjoy.
1: Mayor Roden, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Barbara Roden, Mayor of the Village of Ashcroft, talking about the latest case. Now, we had talked to her four weeks ago when they had a situation with you know a slow ambulance and ambulance wait times, and now they have another one. It was about a 30-minute wait for an ambulance for a man in his 80s who was pronounced dead when the ambulance arrived. Now, as Mayor Roden said, they don't know you know, what the condition was or whether a faster ambulance would have made a difference, but they're just highlighting the fact that there was no ambulance, that it did you know, take some juggling to even get one to show up at that half-hour point. So, again, brings up another question, right? For people living in small towns, I'm not surprised to hear that some of them are kind of rethinking it. If you had a loved one, you know, an elderly loved one who lived in a small town right now with what you're hearing about ambulances and wait times and closure of emergency rooms, you would probably ask them, hey, are you thinking about moving too? I think that probably is a question they're asking themselves. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. As we've been telling you all morning, BCGEU job action does start today, coming up after three o'clock. Let's find out exactly what that's going to look like and what we can expect. Joining us now is Stephanie Smith, President of the BCGEU. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Simi. Okay, so what is going to happen today? Well, uh,
5: today at 3.30, there will be picket lines going up around the four distribution centres for the liquor distribution branch. So two here in the Lower Mainland, one in Victoria and one in Kamloops.
1: Okay, so why the distribution centers and not the retail outlets? Well, you know, uh, all
5: the way along, our, our committee has said that whatever we do, if we have to action the, the strike vote that was given to us by our members, um, we want it to be really strategic. We want to be thoughtful. We want to be impactful. And it is a tool. Um, the goal is not picket lines. The goal is to get a collective agreement that our members can accept and vote yes to. And so um, this was what we decided was a very targeted action And hopefully it's enough to incentivize the government and uh, our employer to invite us back to the table um, with a really serious offer that meets what our members need to see.
1: Okay, so if there's no picket line, then what kind of job action are we talking about here?
5: Oh, no, there will be picket lines at the distribution centers. Yes, that's what we're talking about. So um, that will be the targeted action
1: today. Okay, so how long is that going to last?
5: Well... (laughs) Um, that's where we're starting. And as I said, if the phone rings, uh, you know, and uh, we get invited back to the table with a, a meaningful conversation around what our members said they needed to see, which was wage protection, so some form of cost of living adjustment, uh, you know, protecting their wages against uh, out-of-control rates of inflation, um, then, you know, we'll, we'll go back to the table. Uh, if we don't hear from the employer, then, of course, our committee will consider escalating job action and um, but that's really all i can say about that at this time
1: okay what do you say to the concern stephanie i've heard from some private liquor store outlets who say they didn't have enough notice here for them to be able to stock up and, and see themselves through this because they have to also buy their alcohol from the government
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, our our goal has never been to start job action and individuals or businesses, you know, they can certainly help support us to end the job action by, um, you know, letting their MLAs and letting government know, you know, get back to the table, offer these workers the COLA protection that they're looking for. Um, You know, I, I would say we've been in bargaining since February, the first week of February, we we took a strike vote in June and July, which, you know, overwhelmingly, almost 95% in favour. And we issued the job action, um, you know, the strike notice on Friday, 72 hours. Um, We've done everything we can to uh, ensure that people know what they need to know.
1: When will the public find out what the next steps are then?
5: Well, um, as soon as our members do. (laughs) We always want to ensure that our members are aware of what's happening for them. And uh, as we did this morning, you know, we will make sure that we let the public know as quickly as possible.
1: All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you for your time on that today.
5: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Simi.
1: That is Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU, talking about their job action today. So picket lines at uh, BC Liquor Distribution Warehouses at four locations around the province, Kamloops, Victoria, Richmond, and Delta. But as I was talking about there, you know, the people who will be impacted are businesses because they have to get their alcohol from these government distribution warehouses and so not just government liquor stores or government cannabis stores, but also private cannabis stores and private liquor stores to talk more about that. Now we're joined by Jeff Quinard, who's the executive director of ABLE BC BC's Alliance of beverage licensees. Jeff, thanks for being here. Let's talk about this. You heard what yeah. Stephanie Smith had to say there. How are the private beverage licensees feeling about that right now? Uh,
6: furious. what uh, my, my first reaction will be from the folks I've heard from this morning. I think, I'll explain it this way. like whatever the BCGU's issues are with government, this is not a targeted action. Picketing outside those wholesale distribution centers brings BC's entire fifteen billion dollars industry into this dispute, even though we have nothing to do with it. So the way this works is you know every private liquor store a lot of pubs and restaurants and bars and nightclubs, we have some ability to purchase products directly from you know your local craft producers. The vast majority of everything we buy comes from those wholesale and distribution centers. And I think part of the BCGU's strategy here must be that they know that because we all purchase from there, that's where government makes most of its money. So they're trying to hit government at the pocketbooks while also not standing outside of their own government liquor stores, which would really frustrate consumers more. So it seems like we're going to be ending up paying the price for this. Uh, and, you know, our industry employs almost 200,000 British Columbians as well. So this is much bigger than a small targeted job action.
1: Right. Do you feel that that's how it's being portrayed? Do you think that's not accurate?
6: Well, I think that's how the BCGU is trying to portray it, obviously, right? And they're they're trying to do what they need to do with their dispute with government. But we are now caught up in this, and this is going to hurt thousands of small businesses that make up the entire industry, and we have nothing to do with this dispute. We have employees that we're trying to support as well, right? And we're trying to deal with wage increases and every other issue that uh, every other small business is. Uh, but yeah, this is going to hurt us a lot. Uh, and it's going to you know interesting by putting it in the wholesale side. The you know, British Columbians are going to see – stock levels depleting in those stores and they're going to see especially sort of import products Uh, and we don't know how we're going to react to that yet because we just just found out this morning that this was their plan even when they announced on friday that they intended to strike they didn't have any details of what that strike was going to look like so we have had no time to plan even if you put in an order uh, on friday for it most of the stores have not received it yet and now yeah, you know, there's going to be picketing outside of those wholesale warehouses. So it's it, it's a really difficult day for us, and we're not sure how we're going to be able to react yet.
1: Yeah, that gives you what four or five hours, I guess, to to try to stock up.
6: Yeah, and that, that's not practical, right? I mean, even if you place an order now, it's not like it's it's shipped and delivered instantly. Um, so that's, that's no time to react to this. And British Columbians are going to see this uh, impacting liquor stores private and government uh in in the very near future
1: what would you say then to the bcgu what would you rather see here
6: well if the bcgu believes that this is the right thing to do and that's their decision they should just be honest with british Columbians about why they're doing it and stand out front of their own stores go strike at your own stores and leave the private industry out of this we're not involved in this dispute we have our own issues we're trying to solve so i would say uh put your money where your mouth is and go stand in front of your own stores
1: all right jeff thank you so much for your time on that this morning Mm -hmm.
6: My pleasure. Have a good day.
1: You too. That's Jeff Quinnard, who's the executive director of ABLE BC. That is BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Now, all people who sell liquor in this province, they have to source their liquor from one place, and that is the provincial government. So they get their liquor from these BC liquor distribution warehouses, whether you're a restaurant or a private you know, alcohol retailer. That's where you get it from. So that's why he's saying that this job action this morning actually impacts more people than realized. It's a targeted job action by the BCGEU at four of these BC liquor distribution warehouses, uh, one in Richmond, one in Delta, one in Kamloops, one in Victoria. Their concern is private you know, owners didn't get enough notice to stock up and they feel this is going to have a, a wide impact. So I guess that's that's what job action is, right? That is what's happening. If you want to weigh in, simmy at cknw.com. And if the BCGU is looking for impact, they are certainly going to get it. Clearly, the government's going to start hearing it this morning from private beverage licensees for sure. So, yes, weigh in with your thoughts, me at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604 331 2899.